0: and who we are, and what we are, that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon.
1: This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.CN, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, here with you for the hour. On the program, professor, author, and former Olympic athlete Jules Boykoff on the Olympic Games, Celebration Capitalism, and dissent at the Games. An in-depth interview with Jules Boykoff on the London, Vancouver, and Sochi Games. This is the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions Stay with us. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and available as a podcast from thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. As the Sochi Winter Games are underway, uh, it's important maybe to reflect on uh, uh, the Olympic Games and the political, economic, uh, social, and urban dimensions of uh, this mega-event spectacle. So on the program today, uh, Jules Boykoff. Jules Boykoff writes on a range of subjects, including political activism, the Olympic Games, and climate change. He is the author of two books on the Olympics, Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games, published in 2013, and his forthcoming book Activism and the Olympics: Dissent at the Games in Vancouver and London. He has also written two books on the suppression on on suppression of political dissent, Beyond Bullets: The Suppression of Dissent in the United States, and The Suppression of Dissent: How the State and Mass Media Squelch US American Social Movements. He has written many other journal articles and publications, uh, and for publications, including the New Left Review and UK's Guardian newspaper. Jules Boykoff is associate professor in the Department of Politics and Government at Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon, and I spoke with Dr. Jules Boykoff in Vancouver on February 14th. Can you tell me what you mean by celebration capitalism?
0: Sure. Actually, we're speaking in Vancouver, and there's an activist named Am Joe Hall, who was quite active during the Olympic moment here in Vancouver in 2010. And he sort of gave me a slogan for Celebration Capitalism. And he said once when I was interviewing him, the Olympics are a corporate franchise that you buy with public money. And that economic relationship sits at the center of what I call Celebration Capitalism. But To understand what I mean by celebration capitalism, we sort of have to take a step to the side and talk for a second about Naomi Klein's idea of disaster capitalism. So in her book, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, she discusses the many ways in which capitalists capitalize off catastrophe. So when there's a hurricane or there's a severe economic downturn or something to that effect, the capitalists swoop in and they install neoliberal policies meaning they get rid of regulations, they privatize everything with a pulse, and they use a lot of free market rhetoric, like let's let the market decide. And so I think she's right. A lot of times that is exactly what happens. But I also think that capitalism is a nimble shapeshifter, and it takes different forms in different moments, and in fact it takes different forms in the same exact historical moment. So I think that's where celebration capitalism comes in. Sure, there's moments of peril that Ms. Klein writes about, and there's also, though, moments of social celebration. And I look at the Olympics as sort of a primo example of that. And so, like with disaster capitalism, my idea of celebration capitalism is that it occurs in a state of exception where the normal political rules do not apply. And this allows uh, plucky capitalists, along with their collaborators in government, to put forth policies that they'd never be able to get during normal political times. So we share the idea that there being a state of exception. Where we differ I think, in the main way we differ, is how we then think about the economics that happens afterwards in that state of exception. So as I say for Klein it's all about neoliberal capitalism which he calls free market fundamentalism. And for me it's more about public-private partnerships. The only thing about these uh, so-called public-private partnerships is that they're quite lopsided. The public tends to pay and the private entities tend to walk away with the profit. And if you look at the numbers in terms of the amount of money that taxpayers kick in versus private entities, time and time again, you see that the public tends to pay a whole lot more to pay for the celebration. There's other elements to the Celebration Capitalism argument, but that political-economic relationship sits at the center of it. There's also the role that social and environmental sustainability plays, and then there's also the policing of the social celebration to make sure that nobody ruins it, whether they're talking about a terrorist or whether we're talking about a dissident citizen that just wants to raise some important questions about the way the sport festival is playing out.
1: Would you say that Celebration Capitalism is specifically about the Olympics, or can we think of it more broadly as sort of a category to um, analyze what's going on with mega events or other type of spectacles?
0: I think we can look at it more broadly, and that's the argument I make. I focus on the Olympics because I think it's sort of the quintessential example, but I think we could look at stadium building, for example, in the United States and how that tends to play out to create the social celebration of sport of a professional team. You could also look at the Queen's Jubilee, for example, in London. I was doing research in England during the time of the Jubilee, which came right before the London 2012 Olympics, and a lot of it was paid for by the taxpayers, and it was this sort of moment of social celebration. So I think you can, and I hope researchers and and social commentators do, take this idea of Celebration Capitalism and apply it to other instances. What I just tried to do in in my book was look at the Olympics in particular and play it out all the way and talk about, try to make a convincing argument about how Celebration Capitalism developed historically by looking at the Olympics as one lens for understanding it.
1: Can you talk specifically and provide a sketch of that history of Celebration Capitalism, uh, specifically in regard to the Olympics?
0: Sure. In 1932, one of the essential building blocks for Celebration Capitalism was put forth. The Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles held the 1932 Olympics. And there was this incredible fight, 1932. So it's right at the beginning, right on the edge of the depression. And the citizens of Los Angeles put up a real fight about paying for it. So you see one of the early battles. In fact, they were quite successful at not paying for it. The International Olympic Committee decided to make it very press friendly by crunching down the number of athletic competition days to basically two and a half weeks which is what we have today. They also made it very possible for the press to feel loved. They set up awesome situations for the media to report on. This is also another thing that's kind of played out through the day and today and the media play a, a vital role in producing the political spectacle of the Olympics. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, choreographs it but they're very reliant on mainstream mass media to proliferate the messages of goodwill and to sort of sidestep or circumvent some of the seemier underbelly sides of the Olympics. So 1932 was important. I think 1976, though, was an even more important year for the development of Celebration Capitalism. That's when Montreal hosted the Summer Olympics. Mayor Jean Drapeau, the mayor of Montreal, once infamously said that the Montreal Olympics could no sooner run a deficit than a man could have a baby. And he quite infamously guessed that the Olympics was going to cost a mere $125 million. And uh, as Canadians know all too well, the Games ended up costing $1.5 billion. So it went from $125 million to $1.5 billion. The debt was not paid off. Until 30 years later, in 2006, and I might just add to top it off, two years later, in 2008, a man had a baby <laughs> for real. Sky Thomas Beatty, transsexual man from my home state of Bend, Oregon, he's from Bend, uh, had a healthy baby girl in July 2008. So Drapo was across the board 100% wrong. But you know, more to the point, of celebration capitalism and its development. It really set forth the possibility in a major way of lowballing costs. Vancouver journalist Bob Mackin has written that the bid books for the Olympics are more like etch a sketch pads, and I think Montreal really shows that. They said it was gonna be 125 million and it ended up being one point five billion. When you have this huge gap in costs, who's gonna cover it? Well, it turns out it's usually going to be the taxpayer, because the government that's hosting the Olympics doesn't want to look stupid on the world stage. Next step with the, the, the history of celebration capitalism would have to be 1984 in Los Angeles, what many people point to as the neoliberal games, because they were essentially privatized. I think that is overstated, first of all, because there were a bunch of public subsidies for policing, for water, for other things that aren't cheap, that aren't really tabulated into the final tally. The final tally tells us that Los Angeles made a profit, or as the International Olympic Committee would prefer to say, a surplus of $222-plus twenty-two plus million But I would say, and, and the reason why they were able to so thoroughly privatize those Olympics compared at least to other Olympics, was because no one wanted to bid on them. After the debacle in Montreal, After an activist battle around the 1976 Winter Olympics that were initially awarded to Denver, Colorado, but the citizens of Colorado fought back and the games were moved to Innsbruck, Austria, the only time that's ever happened. Because of that, nobody was bidding on the Olympics. So Los Angeles was the only city and they got to do all sorts of things that they would never otherwise be able to do. And so I play it forward without without getting into too much more detail on the history. I mean, I play it forward to what I see as sort of the apex of celebration capitalism, and, and that in the book was at least the London 2012 Summer Olympics, where we see the lowballing of costs. They said originally it was supposed to be 3.8 billion dollars. Some estimates are as high as 38 billion dollars. So it's a pretty remarkable difference. The average. That people generally point to as the games' cost were 18 billion, so it certainly wasn't 3.8 billion. You see the the use of sustainability as sort of a a capitalist weapon, almost. For example, the Commission for Sustainable London, the CSL, was a body created just to watchdog the Olympics on sustainability issues. Uh, they were watching over the International Olympic Committee to create a special new group of corporate sponsors called the Sustainability Partners. Those sustainability partners included beacons of sustainability that I'm sure all your listeners think of, like BP, for instance, and uh, EDF Energy, which is really big into nuclear power and general electric. In other words, they were setting the table for some pretty major greenwashing, you know, doing the very least that a corporation can do in order to claim the green mantle. So London really kind of captures it, and I think in a lot of ways Sochi does too. I mean, we see in Sochi with the 2014 Winter Olympics, we see celebration capitalism with distinctly Russian characteristics. It conforms to what I'm arguing here in many ways, but it, it takes special form. And that's part of the argument, I may say too, is that... It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all model of celebration capitalism. It's sort of a middle-range theory that that takes different forms in different places. And it also helps overcome some of the issues that capitalism has developed. When it hits a barrier, you can spread itself out geographically to other regions. So we see this with sports mega events where you know you hit a barrier, as David Harvey would maybe discuss it, For capitalists, they hit a barrier, and rather than dealing with it in a sort of significant way, they just move the problem around geographically. So with these sports mega events, you see Beijing in 2008 hosting Summer Olympics. You see the South African World Cup in 2010. You see Russia hosting the Sochi Games and then the World Cup of Soccer in 2018. You see Brazil getting hit with the double whammy both the World Cup in the summer of 2014 and then the Rio Olympics two years later. And so you see the sort of spreading of the geographical tentacles of celebration capitalism.
1: Give us a bit of a refresher on um, what happened in Vancouver, um, some of the, the opposition to it, and um, maybe relate this to London um, and maybe explore some of the facets of celebration capitalism um, through the Vancouver and London examples.
0: Sure, well I had the good fortune of coming to Vancouver a number of times before and then after the Olympics in 2010 and interviewed a lot of people who were involved with on-the-ground activism and there was a vibrant activist movement as many of your listeners will know right here in Vancouver. What were they protesting? Well, there was so much. I mean, one was the incredible spike in costs. It was originally supposed to cost $1 billion. Estimates now are closer to $8 billion. Uh, There was the whole issue of the Olympics happening on unceded Coast Salish territory, which was unique to Vancouver Olympics as opposed to other Olympic Games. And so that became a really hot and disputed issue. There was environmental destruction building the highway up to Whistler that moved through areas that were pristine, that had endangered species on them, and just moving in and creating basically a sort of big old road. There were issues around civil liberties. The British Columbia Civil Liberties Association was very active in fighting the laws that were put into place to harmonize Vancouver with the dictates of the International Olympic Committee. Perhaps most famously was the sign by law that Vancouver passed in the lead up to the games that made it illegal to put signs up that were not celebratory of the Olympics. So, and that, that's an important part of this state of exception that I'm talking about, is that the host city is forced to create all these special laws and rules that can inhibit free speech in, in pretty major ways. So there's that going on in Vancouver. Same thing happened in London. So there's also the the fact that in, in Vancouver, it was incredible. The the Hornet fighter jets overhead, the 1,000 surveillance cameras that they bought. It was like pegged to every pole that I could possibly see. There was the 18,000-plus Uh, security officials from the RCMP down to local police forces that were brought in to police the games so there was this sort of military sheen and police sheen on the games as well and even in fact here in Vancouver they uh, bought an MRAD a medium-range acoustic device which is a military grade weapon used in places like Iraq in war zones this thing is used and the The VISU, the Vancouver Integrated Security Unit, got themselves an MRAD. And one thing that I think was really special about Vancouver was there was this concerted and smart fight back that we saw. People protested early and they protested often. And the MRAD is really a good example of how that paid dividends because thanks to the good work of on-the-ground activists in the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, the weapons function of the MRAD was disabled. So basically, it became a really expensive bullhorn. (laughs) Now, in London, we saw something different. They bought themselves an LRAD. So my uh, acoustic device is bigger than your acoustic device, I think (laughs) is what London might have been thinking. Anyways, they bought themselves an LRAD, and they had it on hand for the Olympics. And this has just become par for the Olympics course. Um, London resembled a military hardware convention when you were there, and it was made worse by the fact that right before the Olympics started, G4S, the private security company that had been contracted to provide security officials, basically admitted, we haven't been able to train enough people. And so they literally had to call the troops in. And you'd see the troops who, I should say, incidentally, were not happy about coming home from Afghanistan and thinking they were going to get some time with their family and then told to check bags and stand around at these Olympic venues. They were not happy about it. And there's plenty of stories about them. But they did lend a sort of certain military sheen because when they're walking around afterwards in their military uniforms heading home or wherever, you would see it all around. So uh, Vancouver really created a, an interesting moment where activists came together across a political spectrum in ways that maybe wouldn't have been possible were it not for the Olympics rolling through town. I mean if we're trying to look at the happier side of things, maybe maybe Olympic officials are right. It can bring people together. It does seem to have brought some creative activists together in Vancouver. We saw similar activists fight back in, in London, but especially around issues of corporate sponsorship, like the BP sponsorship I mentioned before. So the point, I guess, with, with both of them in terms of the political economic relationship is that the taxpayer really does end up funding at the end of the day. I think what crystallizes that issue in both instances with Vancouver and with London is the Olympic Village. In the 2010 Olympic Games here in Vancouver, this was supposed to be the crown jewel of the Olympic moment. It was going to be this wonderful place where after the games, so the Olympic Villages where all the athletes stay during the Olympics. And then after the games, it was going to be converted into this nice mixed housing kind of situation. And it was being built, contracted out by, to a private corporation who basically fell flat on its back and left it for the taxpayers to cover them. And then, of course, same thing happens in London, where you have the Olympic Village being built by this lend-lease group from Australia with dodgy connections to corporate corporate and Olympic insiders. Again, fall flat on their back thanks to the credit crunch of 2008, and the London organizers have to come in and, and fill the void. And even in London, it's almost worse in the sense that they had to sell off the Olympic Village at a taxpayer loss after fully nationalizing it. They had to sell it off at a taxpayer loss of 275 million pounds to the Qatari family's realty company. So, I mean, it was just an all-around debacle. And I think that crystallizes some of the issues that we see where officials so freely use taxpayer money to pay for these things so they don't look bad on the public stage, and then just hand over these incredible gifts to private entities afterwards.
1: You touched on it, but can you talk more about the role of media in all of
0: this? Sure. Media are integral to creating this political spectacle and to proliferating it to a wide audience. After all, most of us are going to learn what we learn about the Olympics through the media. We can't be there ourselves. And so there's a there's a number of trends in regards to the media that we've seen. I did a media analysis of... What the mainstream media did with the Vancouver Olympics as well as the London Olympics. And the trend that emerges is that in the lead up to the actual Olympic Games, there is space for activists to put forth critiques or for regular everyday citizens to say, hey, wait a second, what are you doing with my taxpayer money? But once the actual Olympics start... Everybody's supposed to just get on board and stop with the whining. They were called grumble bunnies, the whiners and grumble bunnies in the Vancouver press. That's what they call people who continued to just not throw in the towel once the actual Olympics started and continue on with their critiques of the Olympics. So you see this incredible shutdown of discursive space where people can freely voice what they actually think about these matters. And so the media, I mean, they're gatekeepers in a lot of ways. I would say that also one thing that was really special about Vancouver was in light of but also in advance of that shutdown of political space through the media, there was the creation of the Vancouver Media Co-op, this incredibly impressive alternative structure that was throwing out alternative narratives for the general public to consider. And that was a a really terrific, I think, legacy of the Vancouver Olympics was to have a thriving alternative media that was putting forth rigorous, creative, alternative interpretations of what we were seeing with the Olympics. But when it comes to just the mainstream mass media, yeah, they play a really key role in proliferating the spectacle, in proliferating the festive commercialism quite unproblematically, festive commercialism being a key element of celebration capitalism and they make they sort of normalize that hyper-commercialized space that the Olympics have become.
1: It was interesting, leading up to the Games, Amy Goodman actually was detained um, at the Canadian border, and she was scheduled to give a talk at the Vancouver Public Library um, about her recent book. And uh, they detained her for a number of hours and repeatedly asked her, was she coming to talk about the Olympics? And it was just interesting because, in fact, she wasn't, um, but it, it generated uh, some interest in, well, maybe I should explore this more. Um, and I guess it just raises questions, too, about Sochi, um, about you know the different locations in which um, journalists are able to go, what they're able to see, what access they're given, um, and And I guess it just raises a whole series of questions, and I wonder if you can speak more to that in Sochi, um, in a place um, where, you know, in a country that we could argue does not have the same freedoms um, in Canada or the U.S. or, or England.
0: Yeah, Amy Goodman, when she came across the border and they asked her, are you covering the Olympics? Her her response essentially became, well, I am now. (laughs) And she actually, with with the help of Franklin Lopez, who was heavily involved in the Vancouver Media Co-op, produced a couple pieces during the Vancouver Olympics. And then she also covered the London 2012 Games, and she just had a segment on last week on Sochi 2014. But you, you raise another point that's important about how the media are sort of shepherded around and allowed to see certain places and shepherded away from other spaces. And the the urban terrain is manipulated in such a way to make it look much better. You know, you saw the... Uh, what I mean by better is is from the perspective of the International Olympic Committee, like cleaner, not problematic, no poor people clogging up space, that sort of thing. So... In Vancouver, you saw in the lead up to the games, the Assistance to Shelter Act, which a lot of people derided as the sort of Olympic kidnapping act, basically take people off the streets. We want it to look as quote unquote good as possible for our visitors. We don't want to alienate anybody. And the the media kind of then gets shepherded around into these spaces. And so how hard is it to get off the beaten path? It's actually pretty hard for a journalist to get off the beaten path, especially in a place like Sochi. Where we've been sort of had the the fear of terror and terrorism uh, ramped up in the lead up to the games. That's one of the major tropes that the media have put forth as they've covered the games in the lead up. And journalists are well aware it could be a dangerous situation. They're not going to go off the beaten path, whereas they maybe would a little bit in London or they would in theory in Vancouver. Uh, that's not going to happen as much. I've I've heard a number of journalists from Sochi covering the games. Uh, interviewed on the radio and on podcasts and such and for example just one of them an espn writer was asked how much he's gone off alone away from the official media tours and he'd been there more than a week and had only gone off the tour once and didn't seem to have gleaned all that much from it which should be hard all of a sudden you're you're running free and he mostly talked about the dogs that were running around how cute they were so so, yeah, I mean, the, the media play a key role. They're shepherded around, and they need to. I, th- I think they should be more critical. They should cut back against the grain. I mean, that's what we ask journalists to do is to go out and find the conflicts and controversies and look at all the people who have uh, legitimate grievances and really pursue them to the fullest.
1: What do you make of uh, the, you know, journalists tweeting all their photos of brown, dirty water and photos of half-built hotels and sort of the way that this gets framed? And I'm, I'm just wondering, is, has the focus been sort of, has it missed the mark in terms of a more critical take on the whole situation in Sochi?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of the coverage that we've seen has been fluffy criticism about the brown water about the double toilets that we saw there's one famous or infamous photograph of two toilets in one stall ironic given the anti-lgbt law that russia passed in advance of the games and i guess if they use the dirty brown water in the olympic village or in the media's posh hotels to talk about other communities in the nearby area that, for example, lost all access to water thanks to the construction of Sochi, well fine, use it as a springboard, use it as your hook if you will, great, I'm all for that. Uh, But it seems to me there's not as much of that going on as there is sort of general griping about the hotel's shower curtains not being assembled properly or even at all. There's a lot out there in Sochi that could be covered. Uh, For me, again, the dogs, interesting, sad. And for your listeners that haven't been following, there's just a bunch of dogs running wild in Sochi. And they, uh, organizers hired a a group to essentially capture and kill a lot of these dogs, which set dog lovers off into a rightful frenzy. and, And there's been a lot of organizing around trying to save these dogs and to find them all homes. Well, it seems to me that... Oh, and then this whole thing about saving the dogs has been bankrolled by a Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska. Now, it seems to me that if you're going to cover that Russian dog story and the oligarch who comes to the, to the rescue at the end of the day, well, it sure would be a nice play-in to thinking about the other oligarchs and how the backdrop of the Sochi Olympics are essentially the oligarchic bacchanalia of the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin and how a lot of these tycoons that made off with billions of dollars during the disaster capitalism phase of russian capitalism in the nineties as naomi klein would have it those billionaires are now being asked to pony up millions of dollars and they're doing it to save their billions and so you know that to me would be a really great media story and some media to their credit have covered that there was a good long investigative piece in vanity fair that looked at the oligarchs and why and how they're funding and what the tune of their funding is and how that's complicated in Russia because a lot of these oligarchs are basically state-owned companies. So it's really, it seems like it's an oligarch. It seems like it's a private developer kicking in, but in reality, it's just another state mode of funding. In fact, one critic, Alexei Navalny, an anti-corruption critic in Russia who ran for mayor and did surprisingly well a little while back, he issued a report recently that estimated only 4% of the overall costs of the Sochi Olympics, which incidentally is $51 billion, dollars—the most of any Winter Olympics. In fact, all previous Winter Olympics combined don't cost the $51 billion. But Navalny wrote that 4% of that is really truly private costs. And I think this fits back with the larger argument that I'm trying to make about celebration capitalism is as Vancouverite Joe Hall says a corporate franchise that you buy with public money. Even Russia, where you have these tycoons forking over their millions, it's still 96%, according to this study, paid for with public money. The,
1: the Sochi Games are interesting because they're, the identity politics playing out around it, I think, are, are worth discussing. Here in Vancouver, um, the, the ruling party, um, that was in power during the Olympic Games sent their openly gay counselor, city councilor to go, to Sochi to represent Vancouver, um, tried to meet with the mayor of, of Sochi, um, was declined. Um, but i I guess the bigger question is, what about things like boycotting um, events or spectacles like this that are taking place and maybe you know unjust by many in many regards? Like, I mean, why? I guess the question: <laughs> Why? Why play into it? Do you do you justify it and legitimize it by going there and saying we're going to use this as a way to raise awareness, or why not just say? don't go there at all. We don't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if sort of what what is seen as acceptable
0: is, is shifting as the Olympics themselves shift.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, I think when there's people from Canada and the United States who go over to Sochi that are special emissaries, as the case that you're describing, or with the United States, the official delegation included Caitlin Cahow, who's an open lesbian, Billie Jean King, who, who's long been out of the closet, who didn't end up getting to go because her mother got sick. And then Brian Boitano, the Olympic skater, who, after being announced as part of the official delegation, came out of the closet. So doing that, you could say, is a step in the right direction, showing possibilities, normalizing uh, what's going on you know, in, in the United States. On the other hand, this plays perfectly into Vladimir Putin's hand. It allows him to... Basically, the United States and Canada become a foil, and he can turn to his local population and say, see, it's all these outside agitators who are worried about this law, and, and we are just fine with it the way we are with our traditional society, and da 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 Now, as far as the—well, the, I should say, too, I mean, that law, the anti-LGBT propaganda law, is immensely popular, In Russia. The polls I've seen are anywhere from eighty eight to ninety-four percent in support of that law. So, you know, there there is a sort of clash of values that's going on here and playing out in the Olympic stage. Now, in regards to a boycott, I actually don't support the idea of a boycott if we're talking about the athletes, because I feel like at the end of the day it's just the athletes who are gonna suffer. I mean, the the boycotts of the early 1980s are evidence that really nothing happens on the ground in a meaningful way that's real change for real people, but you do have a bunch of athletes who've spent all their time and all their energy and dedication and then just all of a sudden have the rug pulled out from under them. So, And also, I guess the other way of thinking about it is that... If John Carlos and Tommy Smith boycotted the 1968 games, we would have never seen those fists, those black glove fists thrust into the Mexico City sky as we did. That iconic moment of political dissent that happened at the 1968 Mexico City games. There was a vibrant movement among athletes during that time to boycott the Olympics. And they didn't. They went, and thank goodness they did, because now we have that as not just part of sports history, but part of the history of, of the United States and North America. Where I do see a boycott maybe working would be with uh, people who are going there for tourism. So that makes more sense to me. If you are thinking about, if you're an Olympic fan, Olympic maven, and you want to go to the Olympic Games every time they come around, and you have that kind of pocket change to do so it might make a little bit of sense if you disagree with the way russia is proceeding in regards to lgbt populations civil liberties popular laws that they've passed that are incredible in the, in the lead-up to the games if you're against those things you, you might think twice about taking your money to russia and spending it there so i actually do support the idea of an olympic consumer boycott i think that makes a lot of sense
1: you represented the u.s. on the soccer team in the olympics and i guess i'm just also wondering do, do athletes have more, as, as the Olympics morph and become this hugely expensive, huge transfer of, of um, public dollars into private hands in many cases, is there more of a responsibility, though, for athletes to be political? And I guess even more broadly, um, should we rethink the Olympics as a, as a space of sport? Do we need the Olympic Games to celebrate sport and athleticism or is it would it be more appropriate to to have that in other spaces that aren't at such a big expense
0: hmm. well i do think so I, yeah i had the good fortune of representing the u.s olympic team in international competition my first game was against brazil against the brazilian olympic team that was pretty fun um, but, you know, I had no idea what was going on. I was, a, I was a 19-year-old kid running up and down the soccer field, and I really was clueless as to some of these dimensions that we've been talking about for the last bit of time here. I do think that the Sochi Games present a particular opportunity for athletes who may wish to be activists, if you will, or at least to speak out against some of these laws. And, in fact, the International Olympic Committee has made it easier Thomas Bach, in the lead-up to the Sochi Games, said that it'd be okay if athletes wanted to speak out about equality during press conferences. That's a pretty big step. That's opening up some space for athletes to speak out. Because he also, I should point out, said that you cannot, if you're an athlete, speak out in the venues or on the medal stand or anything like that. But that's just rehashing the Olympic Charter. It's bar- that's written right into the Olympic Charter that you can't do that, make political statements in Olympic venues. So, um, but yeah, I think there is a real possibility for athlete activism. We've already seen some so far uh, with the the skier, from, the Dutch skier Cheryl Moss, who showed her rainbow mittens with the unicorn on it when she came down from a run from the russian snowboarder who after completing his run laid down next to his snowboard and pointed at the balaclava clad uh, figure on his snowboard it looked a whole lot like somebody from pussy riot and i think we'll only well, we'll probably see more as we move through the games here because think about it: the international olympic committee their big stick weapon is to kick people out of the olympic village that's what they did with john carlos and tommy smith in 1968 well, if it's the end of the Olympics and they kick them out of the village, you know, big deal. They're not going to take away their medals. They, they didn't do that to John Carlos and Tommy Smith either, I should point out. That's sort of one of the incorrect inaccuracies or myths about what happened with them. But, but you know, so as we come toward the end of the games, we will, I think, uh, see the possibility of more athlete activism. And should we have the Olympics? It needs to be majorly rewired Uh, And and for me, it would be rewired in a direction that really benefits the local communities who are affected by hosting the games. Right now, it's sort of rigged for the rich, sort of redistribution upward of wealth. And I don't think it's pretty hard to dispute that. If you look at the work of independent academic economists, they'll all tell you that. So I think, though, I'm not ready quite yet to throw out the Olympics totally. I think that they do serve as a real possibility for actually just social justice development. Um, Why why couldn't, for example, all the construction done on Olympic venues be done in a totally ecological way, for real ecological way? Why couldn't everybody who works on an Olympic venue get a living wage? Why couldn't we take the Olympic Village from the outset and have it be social housing or mixed housing and really stick with it? And it could very well happen. Why not? I mean, it doesn't have to just let the market decide at the end of the day in the name of exigency, fiscal exigency. So I, I think it could be a force for good in terms of economics for a host city. It's, hey, it's the least we can do. These people's lives are massively affected by hosting the Olympics. And a lot of them aren't even sports fans and didn't ask for it. So the least we can do is create real deal legacies. Right now, legacy is just a buzzword the IOC does to get away with all sorts of crazy stuff in the lead up to the games but we could reorient the relationship between host cities and the IOC in a way that actually was creating the Olympics as a force for good.
1: Lastly, you've been following uh, the games yourself um, quite literally, and seeing the social movements on the ground that are organizing around them in opposition to them and uh, criticizing them in many ways around a number of issues. Can you talk about the differences that you see in different cities, um, and if there are common strands?
0: Sure. Well, first, I argue in this book that's coming out this summer called Activism in the Olympics, Descent at the Games in Vancouver and London, I argue that it's not a movement. There's no anti-Olympics movement, but instead it's an anti-Olympics moment that brings together movements that were already there in the first place acting on their various issues and they come together during the Olympic moment. So there's one continuity that we see, certainly in Vancouver and in London, is that you have all these groups already working on issues that matter to them, from environmentalists to anti-gentrification groups to you name it. And the Olympics, being the massive juggernaut that it's become, rolls into town and inevitably steps on the toes of all these activists. and so. They come together for the Olympic moment and work in ways that they might not typically. Mm -hmm. So I saw that in in both Vancouver and I saw that in London. And whether they can create a network that continues on for there is a bit more of an open question. There's a group called the Counter-Olympics Network that is based in England. And they have talked about trying to create an international counter-Olympics network with activists around Sochi. There's a group called No Sochi 2014 that was in conversation with activists from London. There's activists from Rio for the 2016 Olympics that have also been part of that conversation. Activists from Vancouver. I know Chris Shaw has been involved in some of the conversations with this possible network that may develop but it's really tough to get people to focus their attention on the Olympics when it's not in their town. So in a way, they're fighting a little bit of an uphill battle. But who knows? Maybe they'll be able to pull off that kind of network you're describing.
1: Is that the success of the Olympics and the IOC is because it moves around? Um, it, it it's it's not as easily challenged in more of a um, concerted way.
0: Well, it's. Certainly to the IOC's benefit, and that's why they're never, ever going to go with the idea that sometimes floated during the Olympics, that they should host it in just one city over and over again. They will not do that unless nobody else wants to take it Mm -hmm. uh, because they know they can touch down, enjoy, enjoy the tax breaks that they get when they come to town, their corporate sponsors get when they come to town, and then boom, onto the next venue they go. They're out of there like Vladimir and uh, onto the next escapade.
1: Is there anything else um, that we didn't touch on that you want to add to the conversation?
0: Well, maybe the last thing I would just say is, while we've been talking quite critically about the Olympics, I would just say that I really admire the athletes who we see who dedicate their lives, and I think everything we've talked about here today is not meant to disparage the hard work of athletes as they get ready for their, to try to realize their Olympic dream. I love the sporting side of the Olympics. I just think that the political economic underbelly needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed soon.
1: Fine. Yeah, yeah, as with uh, the track Sacrilege off their latest release Mosquito. This is the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, citr.ca and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca and streaming online at on citr at citr.ca and uh, also available as a podcast from the cityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst on the program we heard from Jules Boykoff. He uh, writes on a range of subjects including political activism, the Olympic Games and climate change. He is author of two books on the Olympics, Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games, published uh, last year in 2013. And he has a forthcoming book, Activism and the Olympics, Dissent at the Games in Vancouver and London. He's also written books on suppression of political dissent, uh, Beyond Bullets, the, the Suppression of Dissent in the United States, and The Suppression of Dissent, How the State and Mass Media Squelch U.S. American Social Movements. And he's also written for other journals and publications, including the New Left Review and the UK's Guardian newspaper. And I spoke with uh, Jules Boykoff on February 14th here in Vancouver. And uh, he's also uh, associate professor in the Department of Politics and Government at Pacific University in Oregon. And uh, again, if you missed any part of that uh, that, that program, uh, you can check that out at thecityfm.org, as well as all of the past podcasts, um, again, on the website um, for you uh, to enjoy. You're listening to us here on 101.9 FM, CITR, syndicated on 90.1 FM, CJSF, and uh, Again, uh, that website is there for you, thecityfm.org, and you can catch The City live on CATR Tuesdays at 5 p.m., syndicated on CJSF Fridays at 10 a.m., and uh, be sure to follow the program on Twitter by searching the handle thecity__fm, and uh, as well on Facebook, um, The City, Critical Urban Discussions is where you can find us. And uh, we're going to wrap up the show with uh, a track from the PAC-AD here from Vancouver, um, and we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Again, if you have comments, um, please send them uh, my way. Uh, you can uh, leave those comments on the website. You can also leave them on the Facebook page, um, or you can tweet them at us. Again, the city underscore FM. So thanks again for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week. Have a wonderful week. I'm Andy Longhurst.